The following message is entitled, Tri-Power Transformation, Part 5. This message was given during the morning service on May 15, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Sermon titled this morning is Tri-Power Transformation, continuing Part 5. We're still in the introductory two verses of 1 Timothy, middle Sunday of the month, so I return to our morning 1 Timothy verse-by-verse series. The outline review in the note sheet for those here is chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. I have outlined this as priority number 1. 1 Timothy, as the title for the entire epistle that I've given it at the top of the note sheet, is the kind of church God wants. Everything about this is to pastors, Christians, and local churches. It is the blue book with 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus together as a triad of pastoral epistles that teach us, God teaches us, through those three books. This one, the priority number one book, 1 Timothy the Longest, gives us massive, clear, groundwork teaching on what a local church is to do, how leaders in a church are to be, and how Christians in a local church are to live. And the first chapter is a focus on what the church today predominantly is not focusing on. In fact, everything in these three epistles I have found that the American fundamental and evangelical church is seeking to do the opposite of it, which is galling rebellion. And the first priority of chapter 1 is in your note sheet, God wants teachers, true teachers, and pure doctrine in our churches which means God wants churches that claim to be Bible-believing to remove false teachers and heresy and apostasy out of their churches, neither of which the church today desires to do. Under that priority heading in your note sheet, Roman numeral one of outlining these 20 verses is the church was founded by Christ and the apostles. Verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In your note sheet, letter A, we've already looked at verse 1, God's true servant, the apostle Paul, and we analyzed his life for a few sermons. Then letter B, the apostle's true servant, in verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, We did a more in-depth analysis of him because the book is written to him. And Timothy is a remarkably unique leader. He had major issues of sin in his life as a pastor, teacher, and elder that are recorded in 1 and 2 Timothy. Unlike any other leader, he is analyzed by Paul and exposed. And we saw nine major sins that Timothy was struggling with, which were major sins in his life. And yet Paul never once tells him, to quit the ministry in verse 3, the word urged, I urged you, Paul is begging him to not quit. So we did an analysis of when does my sin as a Christian and or leader disqualify me and when does it not, since we're all sinners and we already studied that. Now we're in the middle of letter C, that's why in your note sheet it is bigger and bold-faced the great trilogy empowering God's servants. And whether it's leaders or Christians, a local church is to be empowered, in verse 2, by this tri-power transformation of God's spirit within us, grace, mercy, and peace. And underneath that, 
We started last time looking at the first of the three power manifestations of the Holy Spirit, grace. Try power number one. In your note sheet, grace, it says there, grace just may be the single greatest word and theological concept in the Bible and supremely lived out in Christians. What we've looked at so far is letters A and B. The Greeks used the word grace in everyday language to refer to doing a favor for someone. It was no big deal, that word, in secular society. But in the Bible, letter B, God's grace is superior to how the word was used in Greco-Roman society. For it, freely, it is freely offered and given to those who do not love him in return nor deserve it. So it gained new and powerful meaning in the New Testament especially. I finished off the sermon last time with letter C, so I left the blanks unfilled just to take us to where we ended the sermon last time. Letter C. Grace, then, is divine, unconditional, and undeserved power. Undeserved power offered to hell-bound sinners to save and transform them into holiness. To save and transform them into holiness. And that's where we left off last time. Grace, then, is divine, unconditional, and undeserved power offered to hell-bound sinners to save and transform them into holiness. In secular society, grace was just doing somebody a favor, and usually they deserved it. The Roman mentality is, I'll treat you nice if you treat me nice, I'll treat you bad if you treat me mad. That's, that's paganism. And so there was no aspect of this undeserved and unconditional nature. It certainly had nothing to do with holiness. Now, new material this morning, letter D, continuing to analyze this issue of grace and what its opposites are that most Christians sadly fall into. Letter D, grace is the foundation of all salvation, is the foundation of all salvation, grace is the foundation of all salvation, all sanctification, all service and all protection. Grace is the foundation of all salvation, all sanctification, all service, and all protection. Now, why do I say that? Because most Christians are ignorant. They think grace, that's how we got saved. That's it. It's done. Grace is done. But he's already talking to believers in verse 2. And so these three trilogies that are part of salvation, we need mercy for salvation, we need peace from his wrath at salvation, and we need grace to save at salvation. They do not stop there. Grace is mentioned throughout the New Testament in regards to sanctification, service, and protection. So that's what we're analyzing because this is an epistle for believers, how they're to operate and live in a local church. And that's what Paul's dealing with. These are not just trite aphorisms, little introductory statements like good morning in verse 2. These are powerful, life-transforming concepts. The Spirit works through grace. The Spirit works through mercy. The Spirit works through peace. And we're doing an ascending order of priority here, descending order, I should say, spending the most time in grace, the second most time in mercy, and the least amount of time in peace. Because that's the order they're in, and also because I've already looked at peace extensively in our two COVID series, plague series on peace from Psalm 91, and then a topical series on peace after that. Number one under letter D, the issue then comes up, well, I know how I got saved by grace, it was through faith, but how do you get sanctified by grace? John, I've never heard of that. Well, it's very simple. The answer to that, 
Let's write it down. How does one as a believer access to, in other words, get into grace power in sanctification, service, and protection? The answer, the same way you accessed it when you were saved. Fill in the blank. Faith. You're to obey by faith daily as you once for all receive Christ as Lord and Savior by faith. And we'll look at Colossians 2 in a moment, but fill in the other blank. That faith includes repentance as part of sanctifying grace power. Faith including repentance. That's how you access the Spirit of God to work His grace empowerment and sanctification service and protection. Remember, grace isn't just a spiritual term that means nothing. It means power. Undeserved power toward you. If you want that power to be sanctified, you've got to walk by faith, including repentance. Colossians chapter 2, turn over there. Paul talks about how to live the Christian life in one of the most essential passages in the New Testament on this issue. Colossians chapter 2. Starting with verse 1, we'll roll into those verses 6 and 7. Paul talking to a church, the Colossian church, that is a good church but not a great one. It's struggling with various concepts of legalism as well as seeking to grow. And in chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians, he starts off, Paul does, For I want you to know how great an agony, agonizo, struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen my face. The epistle of Colossians was written to uh, three, predominantly Colossae, but also Laodicea and Hierapolis, three uh, cities in Asia Minor in the Lycus Valley. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. So you see, encouragement and love and assurance these are the marks of godly growing believers, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. So God doesn't want us to have a false understanding and knowledge of God and Christ, but a true one, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that refutes the Colossian heresy of secret wisdom only for the elite Christians. And Paul is pointing out in verse 3 that it's in Christ, you have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not something secret to be godly. Verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. And that's referring again to heresy, false teaching. For even though I am absent in body, verse 5, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline. We're to be disciplined as believers. It's a military term, discipline. To arrange in an order. It's the Greek word taxis. And discipline leads to stability. And the stability of your faith. Stability, stereoma. It means a support. A solid support. I was just walking up the stairs with my uh, water pot by Bill. And the thing almost tipped out of my hands. That's, and I said, I, I completely uncoordinated. I can hardly walk, stand, whatever, and I almost spilled my coffee here. Well, that word stability there is the opposite of that. It makes one firm. Discipline leads to stability, Paul says. The opposite of discipline would then be chaos. And what leads to chaos in the Christian life, as we know in other passages, is especially laziness. 
an inability to want to do what's right, feeling I will do this because I feel this way, and that leads to instability. And notice, the stability of your faith in Christ. That's sanctifying faith. Therefore, the application in verse 6, as you received Christ, so walk, live. It's an imperative command. It's an, an, as you received him, walk, present middle imperative. You received Christ how? By faith. That's how you walk. This answers that point one in your note sheet. I received him by faith. How do I walk? You walk by faith. Walking is referring, it's a Paul term for living the Christian life. And walk includes discipline and stability in verse 5. That's how your faith operates. You know that you're walking in faith when you have good discipline in verse 5 and you're spiritually becoming stable. You're not out of control in your life. Verse 7, continuing the same sentence, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your what? Faith. They're already saved. Your faith needs to be built up. Your faith needs to grow. Write it on the line under that point number one. God wants growing faith. Growing faith is a sign of grace empowerment in your life. Having been from the point of conversion on, built up in him and established in your faith. And what do you need in order to grow in faith in verse 7? Do you need music? What do you need in verse 7? Just as you were instructed. What's the first thing of 1 Timothy after verse 2 that Paul talks about? Teaching and instruction. What's the church about today? Music or instruction? Music. Every person that's quit this church because of what's going on in this pulpit, every single one of them who said, I don't like your worship service, is because of the music. 100% for 35 years. I don't like the music, I'm going to find another church. Music isn't even a fundamental of the faith. And yet, legalistic and licentious Christian believers produce a fundamental rule that is not in the Bible. That you must grow through music. You don't grow through music. After you grow, that changes your music, according to Ephesians 4. So, Ephesians 5, excuse me. So, what you have is instruction. Just as you were instructed. This is how we grow. And it's passive. The word instruction is passive. That means somebody has to teach you. And this is how you are firmly rooted in your faith and growing. Having been rooted in faith. Firmly planted. Being built up. It's a marvelous word. To edify. To edify upon. To grow. Like building a building. Growing. Growing. Faith is the building that you want to have in your life. So sanctifying faith is instructed in verse 7, causing it to grow, firmly rooted and being built up and established. And it comes by walking as you received, verse 6, Christ Jesus the Lord. And again, you have to receive him as Lord. So verse 6 is you received him by faith, that's how you walk. As you received him by faith, that's how you walk in verse 7, by growing continuously in your faith. It was a once-for-all faith decision, repenting and receiving Christ at conversion. Now it's a continuous repenting and trusting by faith. 
You should be praying every time you're instructed in the word that I would grow in repentance and grow in faith. That's something you need to write down at the bottom of the note sheet, that you need to pray daily that you would grow in a repentant heart and grow and be built up in trusting Christ for your life of faith. It is walking by faith. Okay? Point number two. Now let's go to the flip side. How does one as a believer negate grace empowerment? Well, you could say, well, you don't do it by faith, right? I mean, the opposite would be what? Works? Exactly. So you can write that down as the easy answer before we fill in the blanks. That you live your life by works, not by faith. The opposite of faith is works. But let's fill in these blanks and get more specific. What kind of works destroy your faith? What kind of works destroy grace power in your life? Let's follow point number two. How does one as a believer negate grace power? By returning to the two opposing forces that attack grace that were in a believer's life before conversion. That all believers must constantly guard against. If you have to walk by faith when you were converted, the way you were converted is how you walk, then if you negate practical faith in your life, you'll go back to walking the way you were before you had faith. And every unsafe human walks by these two opposing forces. Every human before salvation lives by either of these or both combined. Fill in the blanks. Licentiousness and legalism. And in case you don't know how to spell them, they're in green right below it in point number three. Licentiousness and legalism. You can return to one or both of those as a believer, and that's what negates grace power. Any degree of licentiousness or legalism in your life will stop faith empowerment of grace. Are we clear in that? The more you are licentious, the more you are legalistic, the less power to live the Christian life. It's a seesaw effect. Up with licentious and legalism, down with faith and grace empowerment. It negates it. These are poisons to faith. These are poisons to grace empowerment. You can't have the power of God to grow in your life, growing faith, growing discipline, growing holiness, as you are entertaining and allowing licentiousness and legalism in your life. Either one, if they grow and become a stronghold in your life, and how do you know when something's a stronghold? This is important. I think you have room under point number two to write it down. Any sin becomes a stronghold when you no longer repent. Okay? And you're blind to it. It's not part of your nature. It's your way of thinking. You don't repent of it, you're not even convicted. That's a stronghold. And legalism and licentiousness capture us quickly blinding us to them, and they become strongholded. I, my opinion, this is my opinion, and this, this includes our church, upwards of 90 to 100% of all believers are, to varying degrees, either failing in these two areas of legalism and licentiousness or are completely strongholded. They think they have none of those in their lives when they do. They're captured by them. That's my opinion. Now, point number three, let's define them. And I've given you the two words with verses next to them. And there's no room to write definitions because I gave you the lines on the next side, the back side. I gave you plenty of lines to define them. So let's define licentiousness. And you can go to the back side and turn to Galatians 5. The best verse that I have found 
for defining licentiousness is Galatians 5, verse 13. In an epistle that is repeatedly dealing with various types of legalism, ironically, in chapter 5, he also raises the issue of licentious. Why? I have found by experience that a legalist is actually wedded to licentiousness and doesn't know it. They have all these legalistic things in their lives. It causes them to be out of control concerning license because the spirit's not working. So the legalist is actually licentious as well. You can't stop license to sin if you're a legalist. The Spirit of God's not working. We need the Spirit of God to stop both of them. And he's, not going to stop either, he's not going to stop either one of these if we're not repenting of it and running from it. What's licentious? Verse 13. You were called a freedom, brethren, talking to believers. Galatians 5.13. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. There it is. That is what licentious is. Opportunity means a base of operation. Do not turn your freedom into a base, a fort for the flesh. Licentiousness is perverting the idea of freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is, I've been freed from the lordship of sin. That's what it is, according to Romans 6. Okay? The licentious Christian perverts that definition. I'm free, in, I'm free from the lordship of Christ at conversion. I'm now under the lordship. I'm free from the lordship of sin, and I'm now under the lordship of Christ. That's all freedom means. I have the God-given capacity to not submit to my sin nature at any given moment. I've been freed from bondage and enslavement to my sin nature. That's conversion. Okay? So it's freedom from the bondage of sin. That's what freedom in verse 13 means. Freedom from being Bound to sin and I can't help myself. So if you ever say to yourself, I can't stop sinning, I can't help myself, then you're an unbeliever. You don't want to testify every day that you're an unbeliever as a believer, do you? Christians go to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, I, I, I sinned. I, I can't help myself. Unbeliever. Because that's what an unbeliever is. At conversion, you can now stop any given sin. You may not feel that you can, but you can. We don't operate by feelings. We operate by Didactic truth, teaching truth, doctrine. We operate by the truth of the word of God by faith. The Bible says at conversion in Romans 6, your sin nature's lordship and control and mastery over you was abrogated. It's freedom from having to sin without being able to stop yourself. Licentious Christians pervert that into the opposite. Write it down. I am free in Christ to sin like crazy. That's what licentious Christians think. I can commit any sin. I'm going to heaven. I've had Christians tell me that. What are you talking about, John? I'm free in Christ. I can sin any sin. It doesn't matter what sin I sin. I'm still going to heaven. That's licentiousness. That's what this says. Don't turn or twist your freedom in Christ into an opportunity or a base for the flesh, your sin nature. That's licentious. Imagine a Christian who is freed from the lordship of sin, given a God-given capacity to resist it, and now over the years starts thinking they're free to do sin. Go back to verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Look at the re repetitive nature of that. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject to a yoke of slavery. Slavery to what? 
sin. Right? You were freed. We're to keep standing firm. Don't be enslaved to sin. Don't be enslaved to licentiousness. And when you try to return to legalism and go back to the law, he says earlier in this chapter, you've fallen from grace. In verse 4, you fall from grace. So licentiousness destroys grace working in your life. Legalism destroys grace. And he's intertwining both of these concepts in chapter 5. He's talking about not giving in to the flesh in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. That's licentiousness. He's talking about legalism and obliging yourself to the law in verse 3. He's intertwining licentiousness and legalism because they operate together. So are we clear on licentious? I'm free to sin. I can sin any sin I want. That destroys your life. And it's marked by non-repentance. We're clear on that? Your freedom was not freedom from sin. It was freedom from the mastery and lordship of sin. We're all clear on that. Legalism. Oh, this is the one that nobody figures out these days, it seems. Oh, legalists, as I've told you before, and this is the standard definition of Christian fools, as I will call them. Imagine how lawless a person is who holds to this. Legalism is having to do all these do's and don'ts in the Bible. Oh, that's great. Okay, so in order to not be a legalism, I have to ignore all the commands in the Bible. Hmm. Sounds like a plan to me. And what happens to you if you obey that definition of legalism? I'm not to do all these do's and don'ts. You become a what? Licentious. Some of you I've lost already in this sermon, I can tell. You better get your heads onto this because you're either one or the other or both. Chances are, if you're not growing in faith, not repenting, not deeply into the Bible, and if you don't understand these terms, how can you stop it? Right? Okay. So what legalism is not do's and don'ts I need to avoid. That's nonsense. What is legalism? There are three types of legalism. Let's go back to Galatians 3 since we're here. And we'll talk about this. There are three types of legalists. Now, legalism is the opposite of faith, right? Okay, legalism destroys faith and grace, right? Okay, so legalism then has to attack salvation and sanctification because you need faith to be saved and you need faith to grow, right? We've learned that already in Colossians 2. As you receive Christ by faith, you grow by faith. So legalism is going to attack saving faith and it's going to attack sanctifying faith. Since you need faith to be saved, you need faith to grow, legalism is going to attack how to get saved by faith and how to grow by faith. Are we clear on that? So write it down. There's one salvation legalism and two sanctifying legalisms.
one salvation legalism and one sanctifying legalism, or two sanctifying legalisms. One salvation legalism and two sanctifying legalisms. Now, I know we're not going to do an in-depth study of salvation legalism. That's the Pharisees. Okay? They, believed, they said they believed in the Old Testament, but what did they really believe? In their own traditions. And you had to keep the traditions to get saved. So write it down. Saving legalism is keeping laws to get saved. Keeping laws to get saved. Legalism is not obeying the Bible's laws. It is obeying them to get saved. You see how Christians can mess with these things? I'm free in Christ. Let's just twist that into freedom to sin, not freedom from sin. From from to into, from to into. I'm not freed from the lordship of sin. I'm freed into sin. See how just one word, and it wrecks my life. And now we do this with legalism. Legalism is do's, obeying do's and don'ts. No legalism is obeying do's and don'ts to be saved. To be saved. Just cut those three words off. To be saved, and I've got a false definition of legalism. See how easy it is to twist your mind into believing error? So, saving legalism is subscribing to do's and don'ts to be saved. It could be the laws of the Bible to be saved. I've got to keep the Bible to be saved. Or man-made laws. And the Pharisees did both. So we understand that. We're around Catholics all the time, right? They have laws that are biblical, and they have laws that are unbiblical. Catholics believe in a triune God. That's biblical. But they have all these other laws that they add into it. They're Gentile Pharisees is what they are. That's why they're all going to hell. Because they've subscribed to laws to save. Now here's where Christians get shipwrecked. Sanctifying legalism. You're saved, but now you're going to become a legalist to get sanctified. And there's two types. Both called Galatianism. The first type is in chapter 3 of Galatians. And Paul calls this type of Christian a fool twice. Verse 1 and verse 3. If Paul comes into this auditorium, interviews you after the service to figure out where you're at spiritually, gets up, dusts his robe off, and says, you're a fool, and walks out. That would devastate the rest of my life. Wouldn't it you? If I call you a fool, you're going to say, Pastor John doesn't know what he's talking about. And you may be right. But Paul? And he broadsides all of them in verse 1. Do you see that? Did he pick and choose in verse 1? He says, you foolish what? That's everybody. Basically, this church was trashed. Swinging to legalism and into lawless licentiousness. And he says, who's bewitched you? Who's cast a spell over you? How did you let this happen? You who before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Your believers, he's talking to brethren, he says that in chapter 5, he's not assuming these are apostates. They've walked backwards into their unsaved life, acting like they were before they were converted, and they've been bewitched or spellcast into rejecting crucifixion is how you got saved. How did you walk back away from that now that you're sanctified? 
Verse 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, he goes to the issue of faith. Faith is how you in, are empowered by grace, saved and sanctified. Did you get saved by the Spirit, by the works of the law? No. Doing the works of the law can't save you, so he's referring to conversion in verse 2, right? Why would he be doing that? He's talking to believers because that's how we learned in Colossians 2. As you received him, so you now what? Walk. So in verse 2, he goes back to how did you receive him? Because how you received him is how you're to walk in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? What does that mean? Conversion. Your beginning of the Spirit working in your life is when you were saved. And how were you saved? By faith. So having begun by faith, by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? That's sanctification by the flesh. That's Galatianistic legalism number one. Write it down. What is legalism for the Christian? Sanctified by willpower. That's what flesh is referring to. Sanctified by willpower. It's the Christian who says, I gotta, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm going to try harder. It's my will plus yours. Together, we're going to do this. That's, that's legalism. Shipwrecks everything in your life. They say, wait, wait a minute. Flesh refers to the sin nature. No, it's, there's various things that flesh refers to in the New Testament. The only way you can figure out what karnos, flesh, refers to is context. Do you think Paul is referring to their sin natures in verse 3? That's nonsense. Are you trying to be perfected in your sin nature? He's not talking about that. Flesh also refers to the body. Was the problem they were trying to be saved by physical exercise? It's ridiculous. Flesh refers many times in the New Testament to will. The capacity to operate in your humanness, to think in your human willpower. That's what's going on here. It's human ability he's referring to. They're trying in verse 2 to keep the works of the Bible by willpower. This shipwrecks almost every Christian I've ever met. How do I know? Because of their devastated prayer life. Here's the number one way you can tell if you are a willpower legalist. You have a minimal, devastated prayer life. Very simple. What's the number one service trashed in, new, in churches today? Least attended by believers. Prayer meeting. In fact, it's so bad now, most churches just close into prayer meetings. Now, what does that have to do with legalism? Prayer is me dependent upon the, will, the, the power of God. Praying to God. How did you get saved? You prayed and asked, right? How do you get sanctified? Massive prayer. And so when our churches are devastated in our prayer meetings, which ours is, that's why I can throw our whole camp of our church into this category, right? We're devastated in our corporate prayer. Oh, wait a minute. Just because I don't attend a corporate prayer meeting doesn't mean I don't pray privately. Oh, please. That's like saying, just because I never go to church and sit under a sermon doesn't mean I don't love God's word. <laughs> don't play that game with God. There's no such thing as a corporately prayerless believer who has a super wonderful prayer life, just as there's no such thing as a godly, growing Christian studying the Word who never sits under the teaching of the Word. 
The Christian life is to be lived privately and corporately, and you can't jettison either one of those. They both have to be operating. Your private prayer life, your public prayer life, your private time studying the Word, your public sitting under the Word of God. The Christian life and Christianity was to operate public-private. It always was founded that way. So all I have to do is look at our prayer meeting and the prayer meetings, and I can say, shipwrecked into legalism. Totally. You can't be bothered with public prayer. Don't give me all your excuses and reasons. You're a legalist. And because you're a legalist, you're shipwrecked in grace empowerment, which means you're living a licentious life privately in your life, and you're being railroaded by lust. And you can't stop it. And you're just pretending here. How do you like that? This is why guys like me get run out of pulpits. Because the word exposes us. It doesn't mean if you're in a public prayer meeting that that means you're godly. It's that if you're godly, you're in a public prayer meeting. It doesn't mean if you're sitting under a sermon, you're godly. It's that if you're godly, you hunger for teaching. They're trying to do it in their own will. What do I need to pray? This slams all of us. I ask Christians all the time, what's the number one struggle in your Christian life besides repenting and overcoming sin? Oh, it's my prayer life. Who's ever said their private prayer life is top-notch? That means we're all struggling with willpower issues and we're struggling with legalism. Got it figured out? This answers everything. I want so bad to live for the Lord. Why am I not sensing any power? Where's the prayer? Pretty simple, huh? So you can hide your private prayer life, but you can't hide your public prayer life. You've been outed. Every last one in this room who isn't part of a public prayer meeting or participate in a public prayer meeting. That doesn't just mean come and sit like a rock. We find in our church and our public prayer meetings just a very few, the same ones over and over again pray. What's the point? We're here to pray out loud together consistently to manifest a beseeching public need for the power of God in our church and in our lives. That's legalism number one. Willpower legalism. Second type of Christian legalism Sanctified legalism is sanctified by rules. Number one is sanctified by willpower. Number two is sanctified by rules. Biblical or man-made? If I just keep my rules, if I just keep the Bible's rules in my own power, I'm okay. That's what chapter 5 is referring to. Okay? Chapter 5. Look at verse 3. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. They were returning to say, oh, you got, if you want to grow as a Christian, you've got to be circumcised. Look at verse 4. Have you been severed from Christ? You are seeking to be justified. That is not referring to salvation. Declared righteous. It's, it's, he's using the word justified for sanctification in chapter 5, verse 4. Are you seeking to be sanctified by the law? Declared righteous daily? You've fallen from grace. It says it right there. When you, when you think that you can just set up rules... And if you just keep those rules outwardly, in your own power, whether they're in the Bible or not is irrelevant, you're a sanctified legalist and you've destroyed grace at the end of verse 4. Now how do we do that? Oh, there's the notorious rules we follow. Well, if I just go to church, I went to church today, so that'll transform me. That's a rule that isn't in the Bible. 
Church attendance doesn't transform you. In fact, nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to attend church. Attend. Okay? Can't find that anywhere. Oh, great. Then I won't come. Yeah, good for you, Mr. Licentious. Now you're lawless. Okay? In Hebrews chapter 10, we are to assemble to grow. That's not attendance. That's assembling to grow. Not just to come sit, listen, and leave. If you're a come sit, listen, and leave Christian, you're a legalist. That's a rule. Another one is I had my quiet time today. That's a legalistic rule. You read your Bible. Yes, that's good for you. Well, what did it say? I don't know. But I did it, and I don't feel guilty anymore, so I know it worked. You're a legalist. We can go right down the list of all these rules that Christians have. Or take the biblical ones. You read the word. You listen to a sermon. You think you're all right because you've studied it. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Look at verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Trying to keep laws, Old or New Testament, by your own power, folks. It's faith working through love. We grow by faith. We should be massively gathering, praying, and repenting together in prayer meetings as we do privately cause our faith to grow when we sit under the word of God help us God to be transformed by the word we can't do this in our own power one last verse back to Galatians 3 the legalist will start to say to this well then I guess the law is bad if it sends me to hell and the law doesn't transform me in Christ then I guess the law is sinful that's a horribly heretical position to take the law is not sinful. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No. Don't draw from this. Well, then I don't obey any laws. Now you're licentious. Laws are bad. They send me to hell. No, they do not. What is the purpose of God's law? What are the purpose of commands? To convict us of sin. Not to save us. Verse 21. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life then righteousness would indeed have been based by the law. There it is. There's legalism. Trusting that a rule in the Bible will give me life. That's sanctified legalism. This has been a tough sermon to hear for some of you. You can't duck under the pews. You've been outed. I know it. You know it. But that's okay because I'm not above you. Because the weakest part of your pastor's prayer, Christian life is his prayer life. Yeah, well, wait a minute. You got a little red journal there. I see it all the time around church. You pray through that. Yeah. And that sometimes becomes legalism. I got 68 prayers of mercy in there, and I can start with number one and get to number 68, and I don't even remember them. Just like wrote. Pray for God's mercy, pray for God's mercy, pray for God's mercy, pray for God's mercy. And I go right through it because my heart is bent towards legalism. I have to bow my heads and repent. What a way to talk to someone who saved me and loves me, Jesus Christ. Legalistic prayers. Going through the prayer sheet, just. I'm not above you. When I slam you with a sermon like I've done, I'm slamming myself. We're all messed up. Well, we're never going to arrive. That's right, we're never going to arrive. But at least we can repent. 
recognize the legalism when it's there. Don't come to church this Wednesday or tonight at 5.30 because I made you feel guilty. I need to show John that I'm coming now and I'm righteous. That's another legalistic rule. What, what are you showing me for? I was going to hell like you. How does that sanctify you if I see you at prayer meeting? It's the God of this universe. This is not a pitch to get more people in prayer because that would be me being a legalist. I'm just pointing out to you that prayer is the way that you tell that you're a sanctified legalist. Devastated prayer. And there's no one who's had a great private prayer life who can't be bothered with corporate prayer. It's as simple as that. Christian life works together. Next time, letter E. We'll say, okay, I'm warring against licentiousness. I recognize I'm weak in prayer. I'm repenting of it daily. Then I'm all right. If I repent of my licentiousness, that I'm free in Christ to do anything I want, I know that's wrong. God, forgive me. Okay, I'm not licentious. Oh, but now legalism. I got, a, I got these rules, and I thought if I just read my Bible every day, that made me godly. Okay, I'm repenting of that. I'm trying to get legalism out of my life. Lord God, help me. In faith, I'm asking you to enliven my prayer life. <sighs> Finally. I'm turning to God and praying to him. Now everything is all right. No. You think Satan's that easy to get by? Now he comes to the growing Christian who recognizes that licentiousness and legalism is horrific. And he says, all right, I'm going to fine-tune these down just a little bit and still shipwreck you. Sure, you're rejecting licentiousness and legalism, but I'm going to hit you right in the middle of your grace philosophy with two more soft, and comfortable ways to destroy your grace. Quietism and pietism. Still believing in grace, but I'll nail you those two ways. This is a war. If you walk out of here and say, oh, heavens, my goodness, I am so easily able to be trapped in extremes than that you've gotten the message today. And this is why we pray, because we can't do this in our own power. We can't possibly survive the grace-empowered, sanctified Christian life in our own power. Our minds are gravitating to outright error, licentious and legalism, and even when we repent of those, in our philosophy of grace, we can swing micro-swings into quietism and pietism, and then we're still shipwrecked. John, it seems impossible to be sanctified. There you go. That's how we got converted, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, I, now that you've confronted me on my sin as an unbeliever, it's impossible. How can I be saved? Faith in Christ. Now in this sermon today, oh, this is impossible. I've got all these things going on in my head, licentiousness, legalism, quietism, pietism. I can't possibly do this. Bang! The helplessness you needed to be saved is the helplessness we need to be at. Broken and stripped down like Saul on his face. As a believer, I can't function in this Christian life in my own power. I am helpless and hopeless. I can't, you can, I won't, you will. Father in heaven, may this sermon wake us all up and devastate us, not to do more church attendance, but to recognize how licentious and legalistic we really are. Drive us to repent deeply, continuously. Empower us. We ask by faith that you would empower us to be disciplined under obedience. We still have to put our feet in the water before you part the river or the sea. And what a picture of the sanctified Christian life it is, Lord. Obey, 
Yet trust. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Simple little ditty of a chorus in a very old hymn, Lord, is the massively biblically balanced way we live the Christian life. Trust and obey. Put our feet in the water, then you part the waves. Your power, my dependence and faith, given to me by you, then I obey. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.